Dear Father, teach us today, Father. Walk us through this. Keep it clear in our heads and, and make it sure in our hearts so that as we know it comes from you, we will consider it earnestly and, and give great thought and, and uh, concern for whether we live according to the truths that you give us here today. And I ask, Father, that what we're learning would be useful as well so that we can be a teacher of others, that we can be an explainer, someone who can walk another through the word and help them see things they might not know. Father, many of us in this room may even be students already of this material, teachers even. And for us, Father, just let it reinforce what we know and perhaps give us something new. For the rest, Father, who may never have studied some of the things that we'll raise today, Father, I just pray that you'd open our eyes and just amaze us with your wisdom and power and the things you are accomplishing in history. And use it, Father, to reinforce our trust in you and in your word. And all these things, Father, show yourself strong in the weakness of the preacher and make sure that what's said and and what's heard comes strictly from you and according to your will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends, today in Ruth, we go back now to the second story. For those of you who have been here, you know what I mean. That is this unique quality of Ruth in the way that it has two stories really running concurrently through the text of what's written. The first story is the account of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz and, and the rest. These two widows seeking rest in the land of Israel and seeking a husband. But the second story is the one we're going to focus on today. The second story is the way these characters represent prophetically what God is doing in Israel and in the church, the Gentile church. Naomi, as you know, represents Israel. Ruth, as you know, represents the Gentile church. Boaz represents Christ, and there's other characters as well in the story. And as I've said here many times, most Bible students understand the first story very well. The pictures of redemption created through the story of Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz. But very few Bible teachers or students understand the fact that Ruth is a book of eschatology. That's a fancy word for a study of end times. It's a book of eschatology, every bit as much as Revelation is. And its beauty is in the way... The Lord has woven the details of this eschatological story into what seems to be an otherwise very simple love story. Only God can do these sorts of things, as you know. Now, I've reflected here on the past on how even the timing references in this story are important details of the prophetic pictures here. The fact that the story of Ruth and Naomi take place at the end of an age in which there is judgment coming and we're on the verge of a testimony of a new age to come. We've looked at some of these things in the past. I want you to think about where we are now in history on a timetable of eschatology. For example, today we've seen the reemergence of Israel as a political entity in the land where people of Jewish background have re-emerged in their own land now. They've returned. We know that we are living in a period of history that is anticipated prophetically then by the story of Ruth. Ruth was the story of Naomi, the Jewish wife, who was outside the land for a time, coming back into the land, regathering as it were, picturing Israel's regathering in the land before the end. And there have been other clues in the story of Ruth and elsewhere in Scripture that confirm for us that God's timeline of restoring Israel and bringing this age to an end are pictured in the book of Ruth. And we're going to review a lot of that today and go forward into a lot more. So let's begin by remembering a couple of important time references that we studied earlier. First, we learned in chapter 1, verse 22, this is in the book of Ruth, 122, that Naomi's return to the land with Ruth in tow happened at the beginning of what? At the beginning of the barley harvest. 
And then in chapter 2, verse 23, the very end of chapter 2, we learned that Ruth was working as a servant in Boaz's field until the end of that harvest. Now, in those details, we learned that Ruth pictures the Gentile church working in the field, that is in the world, of Boaz, while the field is white for the harvest. But now in the story of Ruth in chapter 3, we're told that this harvest is drawing to a close. And what then will become of Ruth and Naomi? That's where we left off in our first story. How are they going to secure their rest now that they don't have the opportunity to work in the field? But in our second story, what we're learning is what happens to the church when our work in the field is complete and the harvest has come to an end? What will happen to the church? And for that matter, what comes next for Israel? You know, while Ruth was working in the field, Naomi wasn't in the field. Naomi was on the outside. By herself, picturing Israel outside the grace of God for a time. What will come for Israel once it's time for the harvest to end? Before we anticipate and understand the significances of these signposts, let's revisit the circumstances of Naomi and Ruth once more. Ruth enjoys now the security and the protection of her new relationship as Boaz's servant. Naomi, though, is still searching for that. She's still looking for her rest. She enjoys just a measure of protection made available by this relationship that she has with Ruth. But she is without a husband, therefore she lacks true rest. Now, Naomi's situation is a perfect picture of Israel today in the world. Regathered in the Middle East, still living in their land like Naomi has come back. And certainly Israel today is better than they once were in the sense that now they have some degree of rest. They're in the land. That's better than being dispersed. That much is true. And how was that provision made possible? Well, at least indirectly through the sympathetic support of Christians in the West. And time doesn't permit me today to go through all of the political events that lead to the modern nation of Israel's arrival in 1948. But suffice to say, the Lord encouraged Christians in Britain and France and the United States primarily to support Zionism and allow Israel to have land after World War II and re-enter into that area. Even after the nation was formed, many believers have continued to provide political and financial support for Israel. All of this is simply to say that the Lord has been using both individual Christians and collective nations of the same to provide for an opportunity for support indirectly at a distance for a group of people who have long wanted to be where they are now, and yet at the same time, despite all that, they're not really secure in their land. They possess very little of what was originally granted them by God. They are constantly under attack. They have to defend their land daily. They do not have security or rest in their land. I mean, if if you're not aware of these things, you don't have to turn on any news station for very long before you'll see exactly what we're talking about. They're there, but it's not easy. They have it, but they don't have everything. What they're getting, they're getting because of protectors and benefactors who are able to help them both establish a place in the land and hold on to it in the face of strong enemies. That's the relationship that you see Israel having now with the Christian world that God is using to support them. And that's the relationship you see with Naomi and Ruth. Naomi has what she has because of Ruth's work in the field of Boaz. She's in her land, but she's hardly secure. But then last week, and here's the turning point that we now study today. Last week in chapter 3... The relationship between Ruth and Boaz changed dramatically. Remember? At the end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, you have the end of the harvest where you have threshing and winnowing beginning. Remember that we described this process last week. Threshing is this violent process of beating grain stalks until you separate the fruit from the chaff. 
stalks of grain would be brought in. Like I said, they'd throw them on this hard floor and they'd either crush them with the, with the hooves of heavy animals or they would use implements to beat them. But in either case, it's incredibly violent crushing of grain. And then the seeds were collected, remember? And they were separated from the chaff. That's winnowing. And then the seeds are piled up. And where we ended last time is Boaz lying next to this great pile of grain that he's gathered from his field. And Ruth laying there peacefully resting at his feet. Now this section of the book of Ruth, chapter 3, reveals the plan that God has for bringing the church's work on earth to conclusion. It pictures the church's departure. It pictures the church's wedding to our groom Christ. And if we're going to understand this picture, friends, you're going to have to first notice how the Bible describes the church's work serving Christ on earth. Listen to this passage from John, John 4, 35. Jesus says, Do not say... Well, there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes, look on the fields, they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Now, I want you to notice some things. This is part of what we're going to do this morning, is we're going to notice how certain terms are used metaphorically in Scripture to represent greater concepts. And these don't change. The concepts hold all the way through Scripture, and they'll apply as well in the book of Ruth. And here's some early ones. First of all, John 4 describes the world, again, as a field. We've seen this before. Just as Boaz's field is Ruth's appointed place of service to him, the world is where you've been placed. John 17 says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. We're in the world for a reason, to work the field. And then John 4 describes the believers as the workers. And what are we assigned to do? Gather a harvest. Gather a harvest. What is a harvest? Harvest is seed. The seed of the world, if you will. And as we work it, Jesus says, we earn wages which are fruit for our life eternal. In other words, to the degree you serve Christ in this field, you are earning eternal reward, which you will see in the kingdom. Now, next turn to Matthew. In Matthew 9.37, Jesus says this. Then he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Here again, the metaphors continue, right? Still a field, still seeking grain, harvesting, if you will. Again, believers are the workers, but now we find out that Jesus doesn't have as many workers as he would like. That, in other words, the entire church is offered the opportunity to go out into the field and work, but as it turns out, not all do it. In fact, few, apparently, are willing to go do the real work of ministry in the sense of serving Christ in the field rather than serving self in the world. And what's such a shame about this is there are rewards waiting for everyone, but yet it seems as though because few believers take up the opportunity to actually go work for Christ in this way, that plentiful reward is going to be divided up among a minority in the kingdom. And then we turn to Matthew 13 to discover that a harvest is a picture in Scripture or a metaphor For the end of the age, this age of history in which the church is on the earth working to serve Christ. Look what he says in Matthew 13, 37. And he said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. And the field is the world. Well, there's our confirmation. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil and the harvest is the end of the age. Notice that the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers, well, they're angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. 
The Son of Man will send forth his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. And he will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, time doesn't permit for a complete explanation of the meaning of this parable. If you want that, I encourage you to go into the Revelation study available online. But meanwhile, for our purposes today, what we're here to look for is to notice how these metaphors are used consistently. Jesus compares the end of our age to the harvest period in farming terms. Notice, however, that he did change one degree of imagery here. Now the field's still the world, yes, but now the seed represents believers in the world. So he's moved the metaphor forward into a new way. Rather than us reaping people as the reapers in the field, as the servants, now he's put us in the field and he's made the angels the reapers at the end of the age. All of this is simply to illustrate that God is using farming terms like harvests, like seed, to represent this notion of a period of time in which there is growth on the earth, opportunity on the earth, God using the believer, the church, to accomplish things in the earth, All of it resulting in the kingdom being built in the sense that we're recruiting citizens. We're building a people for a kingdom to come on earth in a future age. And that these things happen through the believer, through the church. Notice also, though, that there are those who are on the earth that are collected, so to speak, but they're not the fruit. They're the chaff. They're what gets winnowed and separated. So in this little metaphor, you have the planting represented, you have the harvesting represented, you have the threshing and the winnowing represented. The whole process is a way of explaining God growing up people on earth for himself, having others collecting them, as it were, by the preaching of the gospel, having that result ultimately at the end of the age in a separation of those who would go into the kingdom from those who will not. And many of you, if you've studied much eschatology, these pictures all make good sense. You understand the bigger scheme of things. Now, when we put all this together, we come to understand that the harvest in Ruth 3, then, pictures the end of an age, the end of the church age, to be specific. So that begs the question, what comes next for the church? And Israel, for that matter. Naomi, in other words. What is the end of the age going to bring? Well, you get your answer to those questions simply by looking at what happens to the characters in the story of Ruth. And, of course, in comparison with other scriptures. So let's examine the characters. Let's look, for example, at Ruth and Boaz. Last week we studied how Ruth came to Boaz, just as Naomi instructed, remember? And she's coming to remind him of his opportunity to act as a kinsman redeemer under the law and to redeem her to become her husband. Now, even though Naomi was a Jewish widow as well, she also lacked a husband. And we said last week that according to the law, either woman could have been redeemed because neither has a husband, neither has any sons. But, friends, Naomi already had sons. Remember, she had two sons. And they amounted to nothing. And so, in a sense, her opportunity was squandered in that way. It's not as though she never had sons. They just didn't turn out right. Meanwhile, Ruth, well, Ruth has never had any sons. Ruth's husband died before any opportunity ever presented itself. Moreover, she's still young enough to produce children. So, though Boaz could have acted as Naomi's redeemer as well, Naomi and Ruth chose to let Ruth take that opportunity. And from the story, it's clear that Naomi is foregoing her opportunity. It's not as though they flipped a coin. It's not like whoever could run to Boaz faster. There was a conscious decision on Naomi's part to say, I will not go after him. You should go after him. Well, those details are revealing a picture of Israel's relationship with their Messiah. You know, when Israel's Redeemer came to them the first time, making himself available in the first century, Israel declined him. 
Israel as a nation turned against him, which in turn resulted in Christ redeeming others in the place of Israel, not to the exclusion of Israel and not to the exclusion of all Jews. As Paul says, there's a remnant even now. But in general, the church is Gentile. Just look around. It's not Jewish. In other words, Ruth married Boaz, not Naomi. And you see that truth reflected even in the parable of Luke 14. You know the parable in which there's a banquet set by the the master for a great feast and he has his invited guests. Luke 14, 16, he said to them, a man was giving a big dinner and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. And the first one said to him, I bought a piece of land. I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I've bought five yoke of oxen. I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I've married a wife. And for that reason, I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. And the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, We'll go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. It's all picturing Israel's opportunity squandered when the Lord came in the first uh, instance. And in place of them, the Lord has directed the, the attention of the Spirit of God to the Gentiles of the world. That's why we see a Gentile church now in place of what could have been an Israel uh, Jewish kingdom in the day. Now, the mistake we can make if we're not careful is assuming that's the end of the story. That is to say that it's now all Gentile and forget about Israel. That's a false doctrine. The truth is it's only this way for a time. And again, the story of Ruth reflects that as we move further through it. For now, just understand, Naomi represents Israel passing over her opportunity to receive her Redeemer. And in place, another receives the redemption that could have been hers. That other, of course, is Ruth, the Gentile church. So then, what will come of Israel at the time of the end of this age, at the harvest? What's next for Naomi? What's next for the bride of Christ, for the Gentile church, for Ruth? Well, when the harvest comes, Israel will be in her land, just as Naomi is. But, like Naomi, Israel will be lacking rest and security. And most importantly, Naomi will still be lacking the Redeemer. So at the end of this age... Israel will still be lacking their Messiah, at least in the moment. Meanwhile, Christ will have proposed to his bride, to the church, and that moment takes place as the harvest comes to its end, in the pitch black of night, with Naomi nowhere in sight. Let's review those elements real quickly. When the harvest comes to an end, as we see here in chapter 3, when Ruth receives a proposal from Boaz, While Naomi is on her own somewhere in the dark of the night, when there is violent threshing going on, when there is separation taking place, while Ruth is resting at the feet of Boaz in security, while Boaz is resting at a pile of grain having been collected and brought in from the field, all of that is going to happen at the same time. Now let's look at scripture to see how all of those details line up to what is coming at the end of this age. First, let's look at the detail of night. All this happens at night, in darkness. And the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, teaches that the period of judgment that culminates the end of this age is often compared to a period of darkness or night. Let me give you some examples. In Zephaniah, speaking of this period of judgment that ends our age, 
He calls it the day of darkness. Zephaniah 1.14. He says, Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it, the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation. Notice, a day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the high towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. And their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy for he will make a complete end indeed a terrifying one of all the inhabitants of the earth. So as the prophet explains here to Israel, the Lord's going to bring distress, a great distress upon the entire earth. One of the ways in which we can say definitively that this has never come to pass yet is the way in which it speaks so clearly about the entirety of the earth. All inhabitants being affected never has any such thing come upon the earth, not to this degree. And he says this is a repayment to Israel for their sins against the Lord. And he calls it a day of gloom and darkness. Jeremiah tells Israel that this time of gloom and destruction is focused on them specifically. If you look at Jeremiah 32, 30 verse 2, he says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write all the words which I have spoken to you in a book. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, the Lord says. I will also bring them back to the land. Notice that. I will bring them back to the land and I will give to their forefathers and they shall possess it. Now, these are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? Why have all their faces turned pale? Well, alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. It is a time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. It shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke off his neck and I will tear off their bonds and strangers will no longer make them their slaves, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Notice a few details in this prophecy concerning Israel. First, he confirms a period of great calamity is planned for the world and for Israel. Next, these events occur, he says, after Israel's been brought back into the land. Friends, this again confirms that Naomi's return into the land. That's a picture of Israel's regathering before time of judgment. Notice also in verse 7, he calls it the time of Jacob's troubles. Friends, Jacob is another name for Israel. This is a time of great distress upon the whole world. But why does it happen? For Israel. It's a time of Israel's troubles. Nevertheless, he says in verse 7, Israel will not perish in it. It's not intended to destroy the nation. It's ultimately intended to bring them back to God. Now, earlier in the study of Ruth, I read a passage from Ezekiel 20. I'm going to go back there again. Let's reread it now. Let's continue to build how these pictures come together. Chapter 20, verse 33. As I live, declares the Lord, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and notice with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered and with a mighty hand, with outstretched arm, and notice, and with wrath poured out. Stop there for just a moment. The scripture is very clear. The return of Israel and the regathering of Israel is to be accompanied by God pouring out such great wrath as has never been seen on the earth ever before or after. Well, we've seen the regathering. We're waiting for the next shoe to drop. Going forward from there. He says, 
I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. As I enter into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. And I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me. And I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. Now, when I first read this passage in this study, we read it when we were briefly discussing how Naomi's return to the land is picturing Israel's return in the last days of the age. So we've we've looked at that side of it before. But now what I want you to take note of, this gathering or regathering takes place during a period of judgment or in conjunction with judgment. Ezekiel says, I love this phrase, he says, Israel's going to be made to pass under the rod. Now, in our politically correct culture, this is a term that's starting to lose its meaning. Unless you were raised by an authoritarian father, in which case you know what it means to pass under the rod, right? So, whether it's your preference or not, the scripture speaks of a rod in the sense of a disciplining instrument on children. And to pass under the rod is a way of saying to feel the sting of it so as to reform your ways. And here you see God using that metaphor to describe what he's going to do to Israel. His outpouring of judgment at the end of the age in conjunction with their regathering. In fact, as he said, they're regathered for judgment. It's almost as if, like the mother says, wait till your dad gets home, meanwhile stay in your room. It's like God put Israel in the room so he can come home with the switch. That's the idea of this regathering. Since 1948, we've watched them going to their room. We're waiting for the switch. And of course, since it impacts the whole of the earth, we're all kind of hoping we don't have to be there for it. And certainly we'll talk about that here in a while. Meanwhile, Israel is going to be disciplined in order, it says, to bring them back into the bond of a covenant that they are breaking. And that covenant is the old covenant, the one given through Moses. They took a covenant at the mountain, they failed to keep it, and they are due the judgments that the covenant prescribes. And we're waiting to see God carry out that that order. Ezekiel also describes this time of Jacob's troubles as a period of darkness, a time when the world suffers under God's outpouring. So as we seek to understand what's going to happen to the church at the end of the age, and for that matter to Israel at this harvest time, our first clue is that this event is associated with darkness, which is a picture of great distress on the earth. So clue number one is that the story of Ruth is in darkness because that's telling you this is the judgment moment coming at the end of the age, at the harvest. Clue number two. Clue number two is that at this same time, there's going to be threshing and winnowing of the harvest. You know, the grain of a wheat kernel is so dense, it's so strong, that you can lay all of the the grain stalks down on a hard surface like a stone, and you can have an oxen, I'm talking about, you know, thousand pound animal, walk on it, and it doesn't break up the grain. You would think maybe the grain would turn to flour, but it doesn't. The grain is strong enough to hold up under that pressure. But everything else is just crushed into little pieces, which is what allows them then to go to the next step of winnowing, of separating one from the next. John the Baptist describes Jesus in the Gospels as the one who carries a winnowing fork and goes to a threshing floor to separate wheat from chaff. In Luke 3.16, John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. And he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So Jesus is the one who applies the pressure at the end of the harvest. 
He's the one that does the threshing and the winnowing. And did you notice where he brings his grain? He takes his grain to himself, to his barn, as the metaphor goes here. Or perhaps we could say piles it up next to him while he sleeps in the darkness. See the picture? Isaiah describes how the Lord will strike his own people in this way in chapter 27. He says this, Isaiah 27, 6. In the days to come, Jacob will take root, Israel will blossom and sprout. That's a picture of their regathering again. And they will fill the whole world with fruit. Like the striking of him who has struck them, has he struck them? Or like the slaughter of his slain, have they been slain? He's asking rhetorically, has God ever struck Israel in the way that he plans to strike them in this future moment? And rhetorically, the answer is no. In other words, have they ever seen God do to them what he's about to go do to them? That's what he's asking. And you go down a little further in that text of 27, and Isaiah says this, In that day, the Lord will start his threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel. Now look at that metaphor for a second. So Israel is being compared to a people who have filled the earth. They're scattered all over the world as God has appointed them, right? And then it's time for him to start reaping them. And he's going to go through like a reaper, taking all the stocks, laying them down, crushing them, and then picking them out one at a time. So in other words, to be harvested, that is for Israel to be returned to their Messiah, they're first going to have to go through a pretty violent process in which they are crushed, separated, pulled out, and he's going to do it one at a time. It's like a father saying, you know what, you've messed up and you deserve a beating and I'm going to get it one swat at a time. It's not intended to hurt. It's not intended to destroy. It's intended to bring someone to the good place they should have been all along, to the place they've been promised to be taken, but it's going to be done through a disciplining process. So, this coming period of judgment for Israel, as required under the Old Covenant, for their disobedience, is compared in Scripture to like the threshing, the beating of grain. And the one we're told who's going to accomplish this, treading, the one who holds the winnowing fork, well, it's Jesus, the Lord. And it results in a glorious future for Israel. Like we heard earlier in the text I read earlier, they will be saved out of this coming time of gloom and darkness. That's clue number two. Clue number one, time of darkness equals time of judgment. Clue number two is that a time of threshing and winnowing at the end of a harvest is a picture of God through the disciplining of his judgments, bringing the people of God to where they should be. Finally, to a third clue, which is Boaz, as we said, at the base of his pile of grain and Ruth resting at his feet throughout the whole period of the night. You notice we studied this last week. Ruth was told to stay there the whole night. Don't get up at any point during the night. The night is not something for you. Stay here with me. Remember that? Where's Naomi again? Oh yeah, she's in the darkness. She's not resting anywhere. She's alone, going through the night without Ruth. It's as if Boaz has gathered up Ruth as he has gathered up his grain. And just as he is sleeping next to his grain to protect it, he's sleeping with Ruth to protect her through this period of darkness, through this period of night. She has, in a sense, received her rest that night with her husband-to-be, even as Naomi, still seeking her rest, is alone and out there in the darkness by herself. Now, we read earlier in Matthew 13 that Jesus compares the end of this age to a harvest, right? And we know Ruth is a picture of the church. And so we see the church gathered to Christ at the end of the age and spending this entire period of darkness with him in security. So while there is a period of darkness and gloom appointed for Israel, that time of darkness and gloom is not appointed for the bride of Christ, who instead is protected by her groom throughout that period of darkness. 
In addition to the name, the time of Jacob's troubles, this period of darkness and gloom and destruction and judgment, it goes by other names in Scripture, names you may have heard before. Let me read you some examples. You have the Scriptures there in front of you. In Ezekiel 30, verse 3, speaking of this same coming judgment, Ezekiel says, For the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. Notice the term, the day of the Lord. Joel 1.15, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as a destruction from the Almighty. Day of the Lord. Joel 2.11, The Lord utters His voice before His army. Surely His camp is very great, for strong is He who carries out His word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? Amos 5.18, Alas you who are longing for the day of the Lord. For what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. And then Malachi 4, 5, he says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Notice the consistency in Scripture whenever this day is mentioned, whenever this period. And, and by the way, you can tell, obviously, that the Bible is using the term day of the Lord, not in reference to a literal 24-hour day. It's, it's a way of picturing this time, this period, this season. And it's a season that keeps getting described in exactly the same ways. Darkness, gloom, calamity, tumult, awesome but terrible. Who can endure it? Right? I mean, there's just no comparison in history. This is not some regional war, not some small skirmish. This is something that the world has yet to see and can barely even consider in advance. Joel asks, who can endure it? Friends, taking that same concept, the day of the Lord, and by the way, if, you, if you've studied eschatology and you've never noticed this, here's a great pointer for you to help keep things straight in your understanding. The term day of the Lord is used consistently both in the Old and the New Testament to mean this period of coming calamity. It does not describe the second coming of Christ. That's not what day of the Lord means. It does not refer to his second coming. It does not refer to the rapture. It does not refer to any of these things sometimes we assign to the word because it seems to us to mean that. Contextually, it always describes the same thing. A time or period of great calamity and judgment brought upon the whole of the earth by God because of Israel, for Israel. The New Testament uses this same term. We find Paul explaining to the church what will come amongst these events on this day. And then you find this in a long passage I've given you there from 1 Thessalonians, starting in chapter 4.13. He says, I do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, or we would say dead, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. And therefore comfort one another with these words. Now as to the times and the epochs Brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord, there's the term, will come just like a thief in the night. Well, they are saying peace and safety. Well, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, you're not in darkness. See the term? You're not in the darkness that that day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light, sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. For God has not destined us for wrath, 
but for obtaining salvation through Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'd love to have the time to exposit the whole passage for you. Again, if you're interested, go take the Revelation study. But the sense of what we need today is pretty evident, isn't it? Paul takes the same term we've been studying, the day of the Lord. And he describes it as a a day of doom and gloom, of night, of darkness, of a time of destruction, like a thief coming in the night. You hear all that, right? And then he adds very quickly to the church, you all don't have to worry about that day because you're not in the darkness. This day is not for you. You're not appointed to this wrath. Well, then you would ask, well, how is it we're not going to experience it if it comes upon the whole earth? And, of course, his answer was in the preceding section I just read. Because before the day of the Lord kicks off, Jesus will have come, the coming of the Lord, he calls it, and will have taken to himself Ruth, the grain, the church, putting it at his feet, so to speak, in comfort, out of the world. He says we'll be leaving the world. Those who have died in Christ will be resurrected first. Those of us who may still be alive on the earth at this moment will simply be moved directly off earth and into the presence of the Lord, and we will be with him forever. We call this, as you may know, the rapture. So the rapture's purpose, fundamentally is to remove Ruth so that Naomi gets her intended judgment, but Ruth isn't collateral damage. Ruth gets married to Boaz, that is to say we get introduced to our groom in this dramatic fashion. As a night of darkness ensues, a judgment period is coming, and that judgment can fall upon its intended audience without coming against people who were not intended to receive it. It's a great escape hatch. And it's planned so that God can be just in all respects, not only to those under the covenant given to Israel, but also to those of us in the new covenant whom have no relationship to the old and therefore we are not due any of its penalties to include the curses that are ultimately coming upon the earth. So let's end with this summary. From what we've studied through the first two-thirds of chapter 3, a dark time is coming on the entire earth. It is a time when the Lord brings judgment against Israel for Israel's sins under the old covenant. The violence of that time has been compared to a threshing floor, a severe beating that has the effect of separating fruit from chaff. Jesus is the winnower. He'll be the one to collect his grain, that is to remove the church from the earth, and place it in his barn. That time of darkness is called many things, the time of Jacob's troubles, the day of the Lord, but you may know it's also called tribulation. The threshing of God's judgment comes not only upon the nation of Israel, but also upon the whole of the world. But while it's happening, Ruth, the church, will be spending that night, that period of darkness, safely at Boaz's feet, at our Lord's feet, outside harm's way. That's a beautiful picture of the church raptured and removed before the calamity God brings. For those of you who have often wondered, are we supposed to be here for any or all of the tribulation? Are we pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, if you know what I'm talking about? Ruth is one of many places you can go in Scripture to definitively illustrate that the church is removed prior to the day of darkness, prior to the time of judgment. Because, as Paul says, we are not appointed to it. Finally, that rescue culminates with a proposal. Let's think about how the story ended last week. Ruth invited that proposal, and what do we hear happening at the end? Boaz then extends the offer, basically saying, your next in kin needs to refuse first, but if he won't do it, I will do it. Effectively saying, one way or the other, you're going to be married. And hopefully it will be him. I'm sure that was the feeling Ruth had. Likewise, the church will be wed to Christ following our removal from the earth. We see that in the last passage you have for the morning in Revelation 19.5. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our Lord, all you his bondservants, that's speaking to you and I, you who fear him, the small and the great, 
Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And it will be given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Verses 6 and 7, that's you. The scripture just quoted you. That is, in our collective form as the church, that's us saying those words according to scripture. In a future day, having been removed from the church, brought into the presence of the Lord and prepared for this wedding, these are the words you and I will speak. You've already got your script. You might want to memorize it now. It's going to come in handy later. This is the moment of the proposal or the the wedding, if you will, that's pictured by Boaz extending his grace to Ruth at night at the pile of grain. Next week, we're going to pick up again in the story of Naomi and Ruth moving forward now in the first story again, back to where the events of the story go. And then from there, of course, we'll come back into the second story as we continue to, to see how the one story pictures the next And as you move forward, we're going to be watching the work of Boaz now. We've really focused entirely, for the most part, on Ruth and Naomi, on the church in Israel, and how these two are moving into the end of the age. But friends, it all comes together in a Redeemer. Amen? I mean, if it's not for Christ, none of this stuff matters. And the rest of the story, by and large, now focuses on all that has to happen from the Redeemer in order for all of these things to happen. How is it that you and I can be a church? How can we enter into heaven? How can Naomi eventually receive the things she's been promised? It all centers on a Redeemer doing all the work. And from here in the story, we're looking at our Redeemer, bringing together the fortunes of Ruth and Naomi in his own grace, in his own work. That's where we go next. I hope you'll join us. Thank you for your, your patience today. I'm sure you got a little bit of a fire hose there. That's okay. You have the rest of the week to think about it. We'll come back next week and we'll pick up again. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll finish today since it's the first day of the month. We'll finish when a time of communion. Father, I pray that in the short time I had and in the weakness of my own ability that I was successful to your satisfaction in stitching together the truth of your scripture. Perhaps I missed some things, Father. Perhaps I misstated some things. Certainly wouldn't surprise anyone in this room to find out that I'm not perfect. Father, I ask then that you would be the one who would stitch this together properly. If if I manage to make some mistake, Father, you can correct it, and I pray you would, and to your own glory. But to the extent it is true and reflective of your word, Father, I also pray that you would explain it again in the hearts of those who've heard so that they would not receive it as if it came just from a man, but they would hear it as from you, an appointed moment, a, a date you set so that they could hear things they needed to know. If perhaps it's given encouragement to those who were fearing things they didn't need to fear, well then, thank you for that, Father. If perhaps it corrected some theology that has hampered our understanding of things, Father, thank you for that, Father. If it gave us something entirely new, if it opened our eyes wide to the power that you have to do things like this and to to make the world come to its appointed end, then, Father, thank you for that, for we can never have a high enough understanding of you. Whatever it accomplished in our hearts, Father, we give you the glory for that and thank you for it. Let us enter into a time of communion now, Father, prepared to reflect not only on what you will do, but also on what you have done. Pray this in Jesus' name.